we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 today, if you want to open your Bibles there. Ephesians chapter 4. This is, uh, I think, part 3 of chapter 4. We will actually finish chapter 4 next week. There's a lot to see here. And uh, so as you're, you're making your way there, um, you know, I got the coolest personal trainer this week. I just want to tell you about him. Like, I go to the gym, and, uh, and I just get to sit there in the couch and eat donuts, and he, like, does everything. He just goes, and, he, and he, he follows the routine, and he just says, hey, follow me, and I just follow him around, and I, I can just eat donuts the whole time. You guys want the name of my trainer? You do, right? Isn't it awesome? That's foolishness, isn't it? We have this, this mindset sometimes as, as disciples of Christ. What is a disciple? It's a follower of Christ, right? And that's what a disciple is. And we in the church, we, we get this, this notion sometimes that, that, you know, following after the Lord is, you know, a profession and a prayer and then nothing changes. Uh, we're going to be talking about that today in, in the message and, and nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, I tell you a story about my personal trainer and I get to eat, you know, jelly donuts at the, at the gym. You're like, I can tell you how that's going to work out. You ain't going to lose any weight. Your belly's going to get even bigger, and uh, you're, it's not going to work there, Pastor Ted. And, uh, and that's true. It sounds silly. It sounds crazy. But a lot of people, they come into the church, and they think, hey, you know what? I, I can be Jesus' disciple, and I can eat jelly donuts, and I can, metaphorically speaking, live whatever way I want to. And I said the prayer, and I got the fire insurance, and I'm good. That's not a disciple. We're going to be looking at that today. The big idea of, of last week's message was that ultimately our wealth in Jesus Christ has to lead to a healthy walk in Jesus Christ. And really, when you consider the book of Ephesians, uh, that's what it's broken down into. It's two parts, our wealth in Christ and our walk in Christ. We have been looking for several weeks in the first half of the book of Ephesians about our wealth in Christ, that in Christ we, we are rich and we are blessed abundantly. But the time comes when the wealth has to translate into a walk. And, and if you're here last week, uh, I illustrated that point talking about our children. See, our children enjoy the wealth of their father, don't they? They, they, they enjoy that, hey, I don't have to worry uh, about paying the bills. I don't have to worry about keeping the electricity on. I don't have to worry about, you know, what's for dinner uh, in terms of providing it. I just worry about, am I going to like it or not? Uh, I, I, you know, they, I don't have to worry about my clothing. I don't have to worry about my education. I don't have to worry about, am I going to have a roof over my head or not? By and large, the, the, the children uh, of the father enjoy the wealth of the father. And, and that's how it should be. But the time comes when the wealth that they enjoy must translate into a walk. I mean, it's, it's a cute thing when a five-year-old is enjoying the wealth of the father. It ain't so cute when a 50-year-old is sponging off the wealth of the father, right? There reaches a point in time when, when our wealth has to translate to our own personal walk. It's that way with God. Paul said to, to the Corinthians, he said, When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And so the idea is that true Christianity should ultimately result in a fundamental change of who we are, how we live, how we live out our life. Paul said this again to the Corinthians. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things become new. Now, this goes much deeper than philosophy or a belief system. This goes to the, to the place to where what we're talking about is a whole new life and a whole new way of life. And the, 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 the result and the end of that is that, man, the ideas and the desires of the old you should no longer control the new you. That's, that's the idea here. And so, again, Paul's conveying that here in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, and, uh, and he says this in verse 17. He says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, 
who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanliness uh, with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, Paul says, uh, listen, you have not so learned Christ. That word learned there uh, in, in verse 17, uh, it it's, means literally to increase in knowledge by inquiry or observation. To increase in knowledge by inquiry or observation. And it is by definition, the definition of a disciple. Again, that disciple is one who's going to follow the Lord, who's going to learn by observation, who, who's going to learn by inquiry, who's going to follow, and, and who's going to grow. And this is what Paul is saying. And, and what Paul says here in these verses is, listen, there's a way that the unsaved world walks. There's a way that the Gentiles walk, and that's just a biblical word for those that haven't trusted in the, in the Lord as their Savior. And, and so the, the world, people that aren't trusting in God as their Savior, there's a natural way in which the world walks. And the way Paul describes it, he says they're hopelessly confused, their minds are filled with darkness, and they're alienated from God because they've closed their minds and they've hardened their heart. And I love the way the New Living Translation translates verse 19. Here's, here's the way it translates it. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says, they have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure, and they eagerly practice every kind of impurity. This is the way the Bible says that those who haven't trusted God live their lives. And we see this played out in, in, our, in our society, don't we? I mean, just watch the, the VMAs this, this last year. Turn on MTV. You will see that just this exact thing. They, they have, no, I think, of Miley Cyrus. They had no sense of shame. Live for lustful pleasure. Eagerly practice every kind of impurity. I mean, just fill in the blank. Lady Gaga or whoever you want to put in there, this is the way of the world. Those that, those that are living for self and not living for Christ. And what Paul says here is he says, that's not you. If you are a follower of the Lord, if you've trusted your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then Paul says, that's not you. You're his disciple. And, and you, this isn't the way that, that you have learned Christ. And, and so what he says here is he says, you've learned that there's a new way of living. And if you were with us, and I'll just have you turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's already gone over this. Paul's already talked about, look, you're a new creature in Christ. If you look there in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, here's what he has said to these Ephesians. He says, and you he made alive who were dead and trespasses and sins. Have you ever, have you ever taken a group photo and the group photo was developed? Who's the first person you look for? You, right? You go looking for you. Well, what Paul does here for these Ephesians, he says, hey, you took a snapshot. I took a snapshot of the old you. You want to see it? Yeah, here's you. You, he made you alive because you were dead in trespasses and sins. You didn't come out looking so good in that picture. But he goes on and he says, this is the way you once walked. He says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. And that word course, it, it's, it's the picture of, of like a, a river, the, the course that a river would take. That There's just a, a flow to it. There's a, there's a self-direction to it. There's a current to it. That's literally what that word means. It's talking about a, a flow of a current. And, and so what he says... He says, you once walked according to the current or the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others but God, and I just love that, that right there. I mean, that's, a, that's just a, a theme for life. You know, whatever you want to put before it, but God, right? But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so Paul here, he's, he's, he's articulating, look, 
there's, there's a way that you once lived. There was a way that, that you used to be. But man, there's a new way of living. And this is the way of living that, you, that you've discovered. Now, because you're his disciple, the, the, the old you no longer controls the new you. There's, there's, and, and so the, in, in this life and the way that you're living, what Paul's going to say is that the, the old you needs to be put off and the new you needs to be put on. And you're not going to take orders from the old new, from the old you. There was a, um, <coughs> sorry, I got to cut down to a couple packs a day. Anyway, um, <laughs> there, uh, when, years ago, when I, um, when I used to, to work as, uh, as an emergency medical technician before I went to paramedic school, um, I had a guy I worked with and, um, he did not like the company at all. And, and for the record, I mean, I loved the company. They were good. They were really good to me. But this guy didn't think they were good to him. He thought they were unfair to him and, the, and, and all. And, and so one day, he decided he was going to quit. And the way he quit was he took this ambulance and he drove it into an intersection, turned on all the lights and sirens, locked the doors, got out, and walked away. And he quit. He just let the ambulance sit in, in the middle of the intersection with the lights and sirens on. Um, you know, not a cool thing to do, and, and you know, he was <laughs> wrong on so many levels. But have you ever worked for a boss? Have you ever worked for a company, an organization, where you would love to quit like that? They, are just, they just treated you wrong. They just were not good to you at all. You know, I, Brenda used to, to work uh, years ago. Uh, this doctor hired her to work in, in his office, and um, he ended up firing her because he, was, he wanted, basically wanted to date her. You know, never mind the fact that she's married to me and we, we have a couple of kids by then. Uh, but uh, when it was clear that he wasn't going to be able to do anything, he fired her. And there are people that, you know, work for employers that are horrible, right? And, and basically what Paul is saying is, look, look you, don't, you don't have to work for that old you. You don't have to, the old you is gone and you can, you can, put, that, you can put that off. See, here, here's what he says is, is if, you, if you look in, in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, uh, you've not so learned Christ, hey, you're his disciple. If indeed you've, you've heard him and have been taught by him and the truth is in Jesus and that word if isn't if and maybe it is, maybe it isn't. That word in the Greek if means if and it is. He's basically saying, look, you're a disciple. This isn't, you know, you know better than this. And so he says in verse 22 that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which goes, grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 24, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So what, what Paul is articulating here is, look, you don't work for the old man anymore. You don't have to live for the desires and the pleasures of the old man anymore. If, if you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, uh, you're, you're a new creation. And, and so this, the, these things are old. They're passed away. And you're not going to take your orders from, from that anymore. Here's the best way I can think to, to articulate what Paul is saying here as he talks about the, the, the old man and the new man. In, in John's gospel, in John chapter 11, I won't have you turn there for time's sake, but basically it's a story about when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And most of us are familiar with it. And what happens there, Mary and Martha, they call for John, or they call for Jesus rather, um, because their brother Lazarus is near death. And so they say, please come, our brother's near death. Well, uh, Jesus uh, is delayed in his coming. And, of course, he, he delays on purpose because he's going to do a work and he wants to have the Father glorified and all. And so his intention is to, is to do a work through that. So he purposefully delays. There's a whole message. We can take a walk with that. But, but that's not the point here. But basically what happens is that Jesus, when he ultimately does come, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And he's entombed now for four days. And, and what they would do in this day and age when you would die is they would, they would ceremonially wash your body and then they would wrap you up in, graves in grave clothes. So this is what's happened. So Jesus shows up, Lazarus now entombed for four days, dead for four days. And so he shows up and he says, hey, roll away the, the, the stone. And, and Martha protests and she basically says to Jesus, he, he stinks by now. He's been in there for four days. 
Um, you know, certainly he's decomposing and all. And Jesus says, hey, you know, roll away the stone. And so he calls, Lazarus, come forth. So Lazarus now comes forth. And the, and the story culminates in John eleven forty four. I'll put it on the screen for you. Here's what happens. Jesus says, and it, or it says, and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Here's the picture. The man was dead and he was bound up. And now Jesus raises him from the dead. It's a picture of, of, of resurrection, newness of life. Uh, and, and so there he's re- risen from the dead, but he's still bound up in his grave clothes. And, and he needs to be loosened. And, it, and it's a picture for us because what happens here is that, um, well, here's a guy raised from the dead, bound in his, in his grave clothes. Paul's saying sometimes we're like that. Sometimes, you know, we're bound up and we, we sort of, we, we live according to the old man. We're taking our orders from the old man. And Paul's saying, you don't have to do that anymore. You can be loosed from that. You can be untied from that. I, I gave you the illustration about the guy I worked with who quit. Um, after, you know, I, I was an EMT for a period of time, I went to paramedic school, became a firefighter, and, and I worked for the fire department. Now, working for the fire department as a paramedic, I was a, a civil servant. I had to take an oath of office the whole bit. Um, and, and so as a civil servant, well, it, it goes beyond just a, a, you know, an employer-employee relationship. It, it goes to the place to where they kind of own you in a certain way. Like, you know, for instance, when my shift was over and I had plans and I wanted to go home, if my relief didn't come in, they could actually force me to stay. It's called forced overtime. And they would simply say, Leavenworth, you're forced. And I would be like, well, there went my day. And I couldn't, you can't say no. Um, I mean, you could, but you'd, you'd be in trouble and out of a job, you know. I mean, as a civil servant, we got into a situation one time, it was so bad, the staffing, I had a chief who wouldn't staff appropriately, wouldn't hire the, the number of people that he would need, he would just work us overtime because it was cheaper for him to pay us overtime than to pay all the benefits and everything of a new employee, and so he had guys working so long that, that when they got off, when their phone would ring, because then they would call up and try and get a hold of guys when they were off duty, when they had a shortage, and say, hey come on in, you're forced to come in. And they they got you on the phone, they got you. So guys wouldn't answer their phone. So what they took to doing is they, and this is true, this actually happened, they would call the sheriff and they would send the sheriff out to the guy's house. He'd knock, you know, show up and he'd say, you Leavenworth, you're forced, come on. (laughs) And they'd give you a right. And it never happened to me, thank God, but it happened to some guys. Now, here, I tell you that because of this. What Paul is saying is, look, you don't work for that guy anymore. See, I, I'm not a paramedic firefighter anymore. If my captain called me and got me on the phone today and said, Leavenworth, you're forced, I'd say, no, I'm not, because I don't work for you anymore. I'm not a civil servant anymore. I'm a servant of the most I got, and I don't have, I, he can force me on, but you can't, you know, kind of thing. And this is the picture here, what Paul is saying. Look, if you're, if you're a Christian, and you're, you've completely surrendered yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, your flesh isn't the boss of you anymore. It can't boss you around. You can put that off. You can say no to your flesh. This is what Paul's trying to convey here. And, and so, you know, the, the issue, though, is that we struggle with it, don't we? A lot of people, even though God has forgiven us of our sins and cleansed us from all unrighteousness and he's made us a new creation in Christ, there are a lot of people, this description of Lazarus fits many Christians today, doesn't it? There are people who were raised up, they're delivered, but they're still bound up in grave clothes. Let me ask you a question. Are you bound up today? Is there something that's got you bound up? Maybe you would say to me today, you know, Pastor Ted, I have trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I am trusting in him for my salvation. I I do know for a fact that if I got hit by a bus today that I'm going to heaven because I've placed my hope and my faith in Jesus Christ. But man, I've got something that I'm bound up in. The old man has got me in this area. Maybe that's you. Maybe you can identify with that. Paul certainly could identify with that. He said this to the Romans. He said, I do not understand what I do. 
For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And he concludes the thought you know, further down by saying, what a wretched man I am. Who's going to save me from this body of death? It's very interesting. It's very telling when he uses that phrase, body of death. You know, in, the, in, in, in the, these days and ages, there would be a punishment sometimes that they would, they, they would, uh, a king would put on a prisoner. And uh, if they committed murder, let's say, then what they would do is they would take a, a, a prisoner who had died and they would lash that dead body to the living prisoner and they would have him drag around a dead body with him. And, uh, and the punishment was, was horrible, as you might imagine, and, and, you know, the stench and the disease and all. And this was, you know, eventually this guy would die this lingering, slow, horrible death because he's dragging around this decaying, diseased, dead body with him. And it's with him. It's his constant companion. What Paul says is that, Paul says, I feel that way sometimes. That, that I want to do good and I, and I don't do it. That that I want to do, I don't do that. That I don't want to do, that's what I do. Who's going to save me from this body of death? Who can relate? God, I mean, all of us. I mean, for me, it's encouragement that I see Paul going through this. But the, but the message that Paul's conveying here is that, look, as a new creature in Christ, man, you can, you can put off the old man and you can live for the new man. This is the important stuff. Whenever I have the opportunity to counsel a, a, somebody who's, who's new in their faith, somebody that's come forward, maybe saved for the first time, or maybe they're rededicating their life, what I always want to say to that person is, listen, you've come forward, but now you need to go forward. It's so critically important that, you know, hey, just as Lazarus raised from the dead, he needs to be unbound from the grave clothes. And those that would give their life to the Lord or renew their life, their, their faith in the Lord, need to understand, I, I, can't, I can't stay bound up. I can't stay in bondage. I've come forward. I've trusted the Lord. Now I need to, I need to go forward. And, um, man, again, th- this issue is, it's, a, it's about living a new life with new beliefs, with new behavior, with new habits. These are the things that we're called to, to do. And, and again, a simple question for you. And I, and I would ask you, not just to answer this question right now, but I ask you to take a walk with it this week. Am I living a new life? I mean, just, just what is, by practice, what are the things that you're doing? Again, a disciple is a follower of the Lord. So if I'm going to the gym and I'm eating jelly donuts and I'm not following the trainer around doing what the trainer is doing, then am I really a follower of the trainer? No, I'm a follower of Krispy Kreme. And, and that's, that's the story of my life. You remember when you were a kid and you would like be walking in a crowd? I remember one time I was in a crowd, I'm walking and I'm walking with my father and I've got a hold of his finger, you know, and then at some point I looked up and it wasn't my dad. You ever done that as a kid and how freaked you were? And, and that's the thing is that sometimes, man, you know, there, there's this idea of, I think I'm a disciple, I think I'm walking with the Lord, but, but man, if I take a real hard look at my life, am I really living a new life? Some of us, when you take a good long look in the mirror, you have to answer and say, no, I'm not. And some of you today, even here this morning, as I'm talking, the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart and you're realizing, man, I'm not, I'm not. I call myself a Christian and there's really not a lot of difference in the way that I'm living. And what Paul is saying is, look, you don't have to live that way if truly you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ. And maybe for some of you here today, maybe, you know, and and we'll talk about this here in just a minute, but maybe this idea of, you know, I've deceived myself. Maybe it's an issue of I call myself a follower of Jesus Christ, but really as I kind of examine my life, I'm really not trusting in Christ and, and, and in the Jesus of the Bible. We'll look at that here in just half a second. See, because what the, the issue here is that when we talk about putting off the old man and we talk about putting on the new man, there's some work involved in that. There's, there's some participatory work on our part that we need to do uh, in that process. See, salvation, that's your free gift, your salvation. God died on the cross for your sin in your place and he purchased your salvation. He gives it to you as a gift. All you have to do is accept it to receive it. 
But, but having been saved, now, when you are going to proceed in your, in your relationship with God, a walk of sanctification, of growing in God, well, that's going to take everything you've got. That's going to be a long, hard work process on your part where you join God and you, you give it all you've got. And whenever we talk about this idea of working out your salvation and we start focusing on this is what you put off and this is what you put on, whenever we start talking about that, it becomes a really slippery slope to a work of the flesh. And so we have to be really careful when we're talking about putting off bad, sinful behaviors, putting on godly behaviors. We need to talk about doing it in the strength of the Spirit and not doing it in, in, your, own, in your own strength. And so what I want to do just for a quick second here, if I could, I want to look at three key doctrines that Paul touches on here that, that speak to this, and it's important. We're going to look at the doctrines of justification, of sanctification, and of glorification. And, uh, and, and basically, this is, the, this is what Paul's operating from. Again, back in Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul is talking about, look, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God made you alive in Christ Jesus, this is the doctrine of justification. Uh, Justification, the the translation, it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's justification. And the idea here is that, man, it's it's that God is the work of Jesus Christ in the past on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. Because what Paul, what Paul says here, and makes it very clear, is that you were dead in trespasses and sins, and he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And the Bible teaches this clearly, that it's the grace of God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ that makes us right with him, that earns our salvation. Romans 3.24 says that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. The Bible says there's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. Ephesians 2.8 says, again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It goes on to say, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, holding that thought, Paul not only talks and is building upon this doctrine of, of, of justification... Um, but, but he moves on and he talks about uh, this concept of glorification. If you look at verse 6, because he, he says in verse 5, you know, we were dead in trespasses. He made us alive together, justification, with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And now glorification, verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, here's what justification is. It's the future work of Jesus Christ uh, for us. For our benefit. That's when we're going to be glorified together with him. Um, Romans 8.17 articulates that. It says this. And if children, us, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, here it is, that we may also be glorified together with Jesus Christ. And so the idea is just as Jesus rose from the dead, we too, the Bible teaches, will, be, will rise from the dead as we place our faith in Jesus. And, and you know, we're going to appear together with him in glory. Now, here's the thing I want you to hear. And this is really important. Most Christians, not most, okay, let me just say it this way. Many Christians, they live their lives with these two doctrines being kind of what drives how they live their life. They might not articulate it that way. You talk about salvation and justification, or you know, justification and glorification. It's like, you know, salvation, justification, same thing. Um, and those are the words that you might not choose to use, but here's the word that, that a lot of people do use. They say, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. And that's how they, that's how they illustrate and articulate their relationship with, with God. So, so how do you stand with God? Well, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. And a lot of people live like that. Okay, that's fine, but what about in between? Because, you know, saved, going to heaven, in between is the rest of your life. So, let, you know, if you're saved at 20 years old and you, and you go to heaven at 80, that's 60 years that's unaccounted for in that theology. If it's I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, great. What about the 60 years that you're here on the earth? Then what? And that's a problem because many people don't do anything with the gap in between. Which calls into question, are you really a disciple or not? That's the thing. And, and, and so the, the issue is, they're ignoring this doctrine of sanctification, and that's what this entire second half of the book of Ephesians is all about. 
It's this sanctifying work. It's this idea, hey, you're rich in Christ. And so now, because of all your wealth in Christ, it's got to translate into your walk in Jesus Christ. And so that's what, this, that's what we're going through here. That's what our, our time, you know, we've, we've spent a, a couple of months getting to this point in the book. We got at least a couple of months more looking at what does our walk in Jesus Christ actually look like. We're looking at this idea of sanctification. See, because this is this doctrine. Again, Paul's transitioning to this, and, and we have to answer the question. We got to look ourselves in the mirror. We got to say, how do I, how, how do I treat my wife and kids? And, and, and what's my temper look like? And, and how honest was I on my tax return? And, 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 you know, how forgiving am I? And how loving am I? And how trustworthy am I? How's it going for you? We have to answer these questions. Doctrine of justification looks at our past. Glorification looks at our future. But sanctification looks at our present right now. And here's what I want you to know is that for all three of these, these works of God, well, they're just that. They're a work of God. You can't earn your salvation. To be in heaven with the Lord, to, to, to know that when you die you're going to go to heaven, it's not because your good works are going to outweigh your bad works. We've already well talked about that. It's either Jesus' work on the cross for your sins in your place, or it's you trusting in yourself and you can't get there from here and you're in big trouble if that's, if that's what you're basing your hope on. If I was to ask you the question today, hey, how do you know you're going to heaven? And, and you say, well, because my good works outweigh my bad works because I helped an old lady across the street because I was a Boy Scout, you know, because I'm not Charles Manson, I haven't killed anybody. Well, okay, so if you get hit by a bus today on the way home and that's going to be your answer to God, I ain't going to do it for you. It's either because Jesus died on the cross for my sins in my place, or you ain't got any hope. That's a work of God. Now, future glorification. Hey, when I die and I go, and the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. The, the statistics are overwhelming. One out of every one person dies. You know, And so you will, get, you will give an account to God. And so there in that place is standing before God, and he, he finds you, hey, righteous, because you've trusted in the Lord, then what happens is you are now glorified. You receive your, your resurrection body and you are glorified together with Christ, just as Paul told the Romans. That also is a work of God. And so too, this work of sanctification, it's also a work of God. Yeah, you got to cooperate with him. Yeah, you know, and I describe it this way. Sanctification is kind of like using the, the gym analogy again. You ever go down to the gym and you have a spotter? And you work, clearly I don't. But if you go down and you're working and you've got, you're on the bench and you're pushing, uh, you know, that weight and you've got a spotter. And what's the spotter's do, job? He's encouraging you. You know, you can do it. Push, push, push. And so you, you end up pushing. You get to a place where you're gassed, man, and I can't give any more. And what do they do? They put their, their hand, sometimes just a couple of fingers, on the bar. And they, and they, just, and they just start, and they're helping you. Push, 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 push. And you go, oh, one more. Oh, you're killing me. You know, and then you're doing it again. One more, and they get, they get you to the place. And towards the end, you're like, man, my hands were just on the bar at that point. I mean, I th- I'm pretty sure I was kind of, you know, putting, pulling down by the weight of my arms on that bar. I wasn't even pushing on that bar. And maybe you ask the spotter, like, how much of that was me and how much of that was you? And the guy's like, I'm not telling you, you know? And you don't know how much of it was you and how much of it was the spotter. It's the same way with the Lord. In this work of sanctification, putting off, putting on. It's God's work and it's our work. Do you get my point? It's so critically important that we, that we do this. We have to put off the old man and we have to put on the new man. And Paul says we have to be renewed in the spirit of the mind. And that's this threefold process that's involved here. Absolutely, totally a work of God. Jesus was approached by the rich young ruler in uh, Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 19. And, um, and he, he, he goes to the Lord and he basically says to him, Hey, uh, good teacher, what good work do I have to do to enter the kingdom of, of heaven? And Jesus answers him very interestingly. And, and, and what's he say? He says, Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Now, clearly, Jesus is God, and, you know, and so he is the good teacher, but that's not the point. And I, and I don't think that's why Jesus asked that question. 
So why Jesus asked the question was because the guy was saying, hey, what good work do I have to do to be right with God, to enter the kingdom of God? And, and what Jesus was trying to get this guy to understand was that it ain't about your work. It's about the goodness of God. And so what Jesus did with this man is he put his finger on that issue that was keeping this man from completely trusting in the Lord and surrendering everything to the Lord. And what was that? It was his wallet. He was a rich young ruler. So Jesus said, hey, you know what? Yeah, you're, you're doing all these good things, but there's one thing you lack. You need to sell everything you own and you need to give it to the poor. And then you need to follow me. Now, that you can't build a theology on that. It's not the Bible saying that there's something wrong with having money uh, or being wealthy. That's not the problem. What Jesus was putting his finger on was that that guy was trusting in his works and he was trusting in what he could do to be right with God and, and, and engineering all of that. And what God was saying was, well, really what's got you separated from me if you're going to trust in your works, I'll just put my finger on the, on the biggest sin in your life and that is he loved money. So, so there, you got a problem. If you're going to try and get to heaven by your works, then you, know, you can start there. Now, clearly none of us can get to heaven by our works because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible says. And the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. We've got to trust in him. And so this guy, this rich young ruler, he's, he's trying to, to, you know, their trust in, in his own stuff. And, and the Lord's saying, look, look, here's what you've got to understand. Your good works can't save you. Your good works aren't going to glorify you. And as a matter of fact, you don't have good works. Your, your works in and of themselves, they're problematic. See, it's impossible for you and me. When we talk about it, we're on the subject of putting off and putting on. We have to do that. But what I want to drive home is that it's impossible for you to think that you can clean your life up. Or to think that when we read this and he starts talking, and he's going to go into a list, by the way. In chapter 4, as we're going through Ephesians, he's going to start talking about how you're to put off lying. And you're to put off anger. And you're to put off malice and all of these things. And, and the mistake that we make is thinking that I can engineer that in the strength of my flesh. That's a problem. There's a, there's a book that's written by a guy named Charles Duhigg. And uh, it's called The Power of Habit. And it basically, he's articulating this, this scientific study in this book uh, that was done to see how human habit patterns are formed. Fascinating book. And basically, what scientists have discovered is that in you know, the, the human brain, that there's, there's a process by which um, your brain converts sequences uh, of actions into set routines. See, because what happens is, in our life, we have to learn new tasks all the time. And so, you know, take for instance, you're driving a car. When you learn to drive a car, it required a lot of brain power. You had to learn a lot of different things. If you learn to drive a stick shift, that required a lot of brain power because you, you got to do the, the gas and the clutch and the brake. You got to figure all that nonsense out. And, and now you try and back out of your driveway, it's even that much more complicated because now the mirrors are involved and i got to steer the opposite direction. Do you remember when you were learning to drive? It was, it was difficult. And, and so what happens is, well, your brain's got this, this clump of cells at the, at the base of your brain. It's called the basal ganglia. It's about the size of a golf ball. And what the basal ganglia does is it takes all of this information and it chunks it. That's the big fancy scientific word that they use to describe what it does. Your basal ganglia chunks all this information. And so the reason it does this is because as God was creating mankind, we have to have the capacity to, to learn new information all the time. And if every time you had to learn new information, it was it was all of this intense work of learning to drive a car. Can you imagine if learning to drive a car was that way for the rest of your life every time you got behind the wheel? It would be horrible. You would reach a cap at which you could take in and learn new information because I'm maxed out. I can't do anymore. And so what happens is God creates you with a capacity to chunk stuff. And so your basal ganglia takes all that information. And now, not only can you back your car out of the driveway when you're driving a stick shift without thinking about it, but you're halfway to work and you realize, I just, I don't even remember the last five miles, right? And, and you're drinking a cup of coffee and you're texting and you're driving with your knee and the whole bit. And why is that? Because you've chunked it all. 
Okay, so here's the thing is that we have all of these habits that are formed uh, by this process. And what happens is the scientists have seen that there's a trigger, then there's a routine, and there's a re- then followed by a reward. And so this is the way this chunking process works. Trigger, routine, reward. And so this factors into our habits. And people, they, you know, they smoke cigarettes, for instance. That's a habit that they've got. And they don't like the fact that they smoke habits. And they find, well, there's a trigger. I'm stressed or I eat a meal. That's my trigger. And then the habit is, well, I, I smoke the cigarette. The reward is, well, I get the rush of the nicotine and it, it makes me feel good. And so then they fall into this habit to where now it's this habit. By the way, when you try to quit smoking, yeah, the nicotine is, is stronger chemically addictive then is heroin, but it only lasts for two weeks. After two weeks, the heroin addict, or the heroin, the, the, the chemical addiction is completely gone. What you're struggling with then is the habit, and habits are hard to break. So this whole book, what they're getting to the idea is, look, you can break your habits by just figuring out what are your triggers, replacing your routine, and replacing the reward. Here's the problem. You're a sinner. And so what happens is you've chunked sin. And it's constantly there, it's your constant companion, and you're never going to be able to get away from it. So how, how do you change the, the habit loop of sin? You die to yourself, that's what you do. And this is what Paul says, he said it to the Colossians, in Colossians chapter 3, he said, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, therefore, here it is, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then as you read through the book of Colossians, he goes on to talk about the things that you need to put off and put on. And, and so this is the idea that Paul's articulating here. And so the, the fact is, is that for us, we have to understand, because Paul is saying, you got to put off the old man, you got to put on the new man. That means die to your old self, live for the new self, but there's a step in between. And he says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And this is what Paul just said. you got to set your mind on things above. Again, he said to the Romans, for those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. They set their mind on the things of the Spirit. This is the key for us. This is what we need to understand. That if you're that Christian and you're bound, bound, you're bound up, and you're like, man, I've got this new relationship with God, but that that I want to do, I don't do. And that that I don't want to do, that's what I do. Well, listen, what you need to understand, you got to change your way of thinking. you got to die to the old self. you got to put off the old man. you got to put on the new man. And, it, and it's really key in changing the way you think. <clears throat> Paul said this. He said, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so this is the key for us. Now, as I said, we're going to be getting into and going through a um, very practical list of, uh, of things here, certainly as we finish chapter 4. But as we get into the subsequent chapters, um, what we're going to see, chapter 5, chapter 6, is very practical uh, um, behavioral things that we're called to do in the new man. And so we're going to tackle these one by one. What I want to do here, and and I want to do it justice, so I'm not going to finish the chapter today, is I just want to focus on a couple of things, taking the principles that I've just talked about, and I want to show you how it works, okay, and what Paul has to say. So the first thing he talks about is lying. We're going to look at two issues here uh, today. We're going to talk, look at lying, and we're going to look at stealing, okay? Um, and uh, believe it or not, I'm going to do this in about six minutes, all right? So, no, I really am, I promise. So lying, he says in verse 25, therefore, and whenever you see therefore, you've got to know what it's there for, and it's therefore all the stuff that we just talked about. Paul takes all the stuff that I just told you, and he says, with all that in mind, therefore... Putting away lying, in other words, you're going to put that off. He says, let each one, this is what you're going to put on, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, and now he gives the reason, for we are members of one another. See, what Paul is saying is, look, you've got you to change the way you think. You've got to put off lying, because, because that, that's not the righteous life that, that God requires for us. You've got to put that off. And, uh, and, and now, you know, you, you got on speaking the truth because we're members of one another. Now, let me clarify what a lie is. A lie is any communication that's contrary to fact with the intent to deceive. That's important. 
Um, because, uh, you know, you, you get a guy who says, honey, I'll be home at 5 o'clock for dinner, and, and then he's late because there was traffic, and he rolls in at, at 5.10, and she says, you're a liar. You told me you are going to be here at 5. That's not lying. He didn't intend to deceive her. He hit traffic. Now, could it be foolishness? Could he have known, certainly, that he was going to hit traffic and he should have taken it into consideration? Yeah, but the issue isn't lying. Maybe the issue is stewardship on that fact. Hey, you're a bad steward, and you need to, to you said 5 o'clock, you got to work better at that kind of thing. But it's not an issue of lying. Lying is when you have the intent to deceive. That's, that's, that's the issue here. And, and so the Bible says about lying, this is the renewing of your mind. you got to think rightly about it. The Bible says that Satan is a liar. Here's what Jesus said. He said, when, when Satan speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. And, and the Bible tells us that Satan would have us believe that, that God is a liar too. In Genesis 3.1 says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not from eat, eat from any tree in the garden. He's, he's there deceiving Eve. He's lying to Eve. And what's his point? Here's his point. If Satan can deceive us and get us to distrust God, then what happens is he can divide and destroy us. That's the point. And, and so the key here is that we have to change the way that we think about lying. Because a lot of people think, well, lying's harmless, Sometimes we delude ourselves, we lie even to ourselves. It's like, oh, you know what, I'm just, I'm just protecting them. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saving them from, from a hurt feeling or from, you know, whatever it is. I'm just, I'm going to protect them. I just, you know, a little white lie didn't, didn't hurt anybody. And, and so we, we lie to ourselves. Well, it's, yeah, I'm just going to protect this person or it doesn't really hurt anybody or it doesn't really matter. But I want you to note the reason that Paul gives for not lying. He says, don't lie because we're members of one another. See, and he says this exact same thing up in verse 15 of chapter 4. He says, but speaking the truth in love, then we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. He's, in other words, he's saying, if you would speak the truth in love to one another, there's this importance for us as the body of Christ. This is going to build us up. And so the idea, the implication is if we lie to one another, it's going to tear us down. And if you doubt that, you can look in Acts chapter 5 at, at Ananias and Sapphira. This is the first example in the New Testament church. The church has been, has been established, and everything's going incredibly well. And the first thing that God has to step in and deal with, and deal with severely, is lying. You got this guy, Ananias, along with his wife, Sapphira. Ananias, the name means God is gracious, or God is good. And certainly, God had been gracious and good to Ananias. He was a man who, who had acquired wealth. He had property to sell, and that's the subject of the story. He sold some property and, and you know, had it to sell and had money to give away. His wife, Sapphira, the name means beautiful. And so, you know, the Bible not giving to understatement, given to understatement. And so, you know, here you got, a, you got rich Ananias and you got his trophy wife, Sapphira, and they've got property. And what happens, if you read a little bit before that in Acts chapter 4, a guy named Barnabas sells a piece of land, takes the proceeds from this, lays it all at the apostles' feet. And everybody's like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And, and clearly, you know, uh, Barnabas, you know, celebrated as this great guy. So Ananias and Sapphira get the, the, the bright idea. Well, we're going to do that too. But they kept back some of the proceeds from the land, didn't tell anybody, but they made everybody believe that they were giving it all to the church. And Peter calls them on it because the Holy Spirit points it out to him. And he's like, what the heck? Why are you doing this? It was your money. You could have kept it. But you know what? You've lied to the Holy Spirit. Now you're being a hypocrite. And that damages the body of Christ. And it cost him his life. Both Ananias and Sapphira were stricken dead by God. And you're like, wow, why? Because lying's destructive. See, we have to change the way we think. And so this is, this is the idea here. You've got to understand, oh, you know, the world tells me, lie, cover it up, just fudge on your taxes, do, you know, just whatever. Tell, tell them I'm not here. But God's word says that's destructive. And so what Paul is saying is you can either walk according to the old man and you can do that and it's destructive or you can walk according to the new man and you'd be renewed in your mind and think differently about lying. It's destructive, it's damaging, I can't do it. This is the idea here. Second point, and we'll close on this point, he talks about stealing. This is again, just a very practicality of God's word. 
Here's what he says. Um, by the way, I'm going to skip a verse, uh, a couple of verses. He talks about being angry in verse 26 and not giving a place for the devil. We'll, we're going to deal with that next week. But verse 28, he says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, listen, that he may have something to give him who has need. See, the Bible says that we're not supposed to steal. It's the eighth commandment, that sh- thou shall not kill. And, and so we're commanded not to kill. Now, but our flesh and the world says, hey, I want what you've got. And, and whatever it takes, man, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this. And we'll look more, there's more subtle aspects of stealing. We'll look at it perhaps next week. But, but the, the big idea, and it's interesting to me because he, he says, not only are we not supposed to steal, but he exalts labor. He says, labor is good. It's good that you should work. And it's interesting to me, every, when you look through and you see the men that God called to serve him, well, the men that God called to serve him, they were all laboring when he called him. Uh, you look at Moses, he was working to care for sheep. You look at Gideon, he was working to thresh wheat. You look at David, he was working to tend his father's flock. You look at Matthew, he was working as a tax collector. You look at Peter, he was washing nets. You look at James and John, they were fishing. All the men that God called were working when he called them. And so the, the Bible places a value on work. The Bible places a value on making an honest living. And, and, and it's fascinating. Paul says that the reason our mindset should, mindset should be that way, listen, is so that we have something to give. And that is completely the antithesis of the way the world thinks. Because the way the world thinks is, hey, you know, it's me and it's what I can receive. And it's, my flesh just seeks to be fed and to receive. My flesh doesn't like to give. James put it this way in James chapter 4. He said, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? The idea being your selfish desires. He says, you lust and you do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss, here it is, that you may spend it on your pleasures or your selfish pleasures. And so the idea is, man, the flesh seeks only to receive, but the spirit seeks to give. And this is the idea. If you want to put off the old man and you want to put on the new man, you got to be renewed in your mind. you got to be renewed in your way of thinking. Listen, the Bible says that God loves. And the Bible says God gives. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Here's the idea as we close. The idea as we close is you got an old man, you got a new man. You don't work for the old man. He's not your boss. He ain't the boss of you. And some of you are living like he's the boss of you. And the way that you can change that is to be able to walk in the new man. And, and, and Paul's saying, for crying out loud, you are a new man. You ought to walk like it. And here's how you do. Change the way you think. Change the way you think, and then you can put off all the lies of the world, and you can walk in the truth of God's word. That's what you got to do.